0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
1: Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. few disorders as difficult to treat or as stigmatized as borderline personality disorder. Thought of to be ingrained series of behaviors, unlike depression or even more complex mental illnesses like schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder cannot be treated with medication. Instead, it requires intensive behavioral therapy sessions and willingness from the patient to stick to their care plan. Therapists are reluctant to diagnose patients with the disorder before they reach the age of 18. And often, the symptoms of BPD are misdiagnosed as bipolar disorder. To their detriment, it isn't uncommon for those suffering from BPD to be diagnosed with various mood disorders before landing on their correct diagnosis. Where the compounding matters is that BPD is often found to exist comorbidly with mood disorders such as bipolar disorder which can mask some of the symptoms. Substance abuse issues can also help to further disguise some of the disorders' telltale signs. As with mood disorders, those suffering from BPD are usually reluctant to seek out treatment on their own and will often refrain from doing so till they are faced with severe negative consequences. Even then, without a strong support network of family, friends, and trusted professionals in their corner, Many of those suffering with BPD will not continue with treatment plans long-term. The DSM-5 outlines the key criteria necessary for someone to be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. This criteria includes Frenic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. Unstable and intense relationships that are characterized by alternating extremes of idealization and devaluation. Identity disturbance characterized by persistent and unstable self-image or sense of self. Impulsivity, including substance abuse, binge eating, promiscuous sex, and excessive spending. Reoccurring suicidal threats or self-harm. Intense episodes of dysphoria, irritability, or anxiety that can last as little as a few hours to as long as a few days. Feelings of emptiness, intense or inappropriate anger, or a difficulty controlling anger stress-related paranoid ideation, or severe disassociative symptoms. While no one knows for sure what causes BPD, experts theorize that BPD is a product of both nature and nurture. An environment where physical, sexual, and or emotional abuse are present creates a perfect storm for those genetically predisposed to the disorder. When left unchecked, it can lead to unhealthy and abusive patterns of behavior. The most striking characteristic of those suffering from BPD is their uncontrollable and sometimes violent rages. The mood of a person suffering from BPD can easily go from loving someone to wishing death upon them within a matter of minutes, leaving their non-BPD target in a state of fear, confusion, and anger. These swells of emotion are many times linked to the BPD sufferer's fear of abandonment, specifically their overwhelming feelings of anxiety as well as the disassociation that accompanies those malign thoughts. While BPD could offer some small insight into the motivations behind the insurmountable cruelty six children faced at the hands of their mother, it would be intellectually lazy to suggest that a case like this could be solely attributed to untreated BPD, and further add to the stigma of an already profoundly misunderstood disorder. Though the Teresa Knorr case has become synonymous with the disorder, Make no mistake, listener, BPD may have been the formal diagnosis presented to the courts in an effort to comprehend how a human being could be capable of such cold and calculated violence. There is no diagnosis suitable enough to explain away the unspeakable horrors Teresa Knorr inflicted upon her own flesh and blood. July 17, 1984 Just off the Squaw Creek Road, near Lake Tahoe, passing motorists noticed the smoke billowing from the brush alongside the roadway. Pulling onto the shoulder and exiting their vehicle, the motorist approached what appeared to be the glowing embers of a small fire. From a distance, the pile of trash bags were visible, as well as some clothing. To the naked eye, it seemed someone had used the area to burn their garbage. It wasn't until the Placer California Sheriff's Department arrived to take a closer look that the dangerous illegal trash fire would unveil something far worse than an act of arson. From the pile, investigators bagged and cataloged 31 pieces of evidence, articles of women's clothing, a pair of sleigh bell earnings, a highlighted and annotated copy of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The pile seemed to contain all of the worldly possessions of a young woman with her charred remains sprawled atop a makeshift pyre. Remnants of a silver tape had melted across her mouth and remained wound around her wrists. Over 90% of her emaciated body had sustained third-degree burns. Worse still is that she had been alive when the blaze was lit. Three months would pass. No one came to claim her, No one went to her funeral. On October 25th of that same year, Jane Doe, number 485884, would be buried in a pauper's grave in the New Auburn District Cemetery, and there she would remain, waiting for someone to tell her story, waiting for someone to give her back her name. Almost a year later, in a seemingly unrelated case, the body of a young woman washed up in a box near Martis Creek Lake. Two fishermen would stumble on the grim discovery. The woman appeared to be in a state of active decay. The maggots had begun to take hold, playing their part in the grim circle of life. Nevada County police had no reason to suspect that the woman found in the box had any connection to the still unidentified young woman burned alongside the roadway in Placer County. DNA tests were not a common practice in the mid-1980s. There were no witnesses. Clues from the scene led only to dead ends. The only thing investigators had on their side was time. Like the Jane Doe in Placer County, the Nevada County Jane Doe would go years without being claimed. In an odd twist that may have delayed the investigation, police arrested Benjamin Herbert Boyle, a serial killer and a long-haul trucker who had been operating in the area. It was suspected that Boyle had been behind the murder of the young woman found in the box... An FBI agent testified under oath that the fibers from the sheets the still unknown woman's body had been wrapped in matched fibers from the blanket found in Boyle's home. Though never formally convicted for the woman's murder, the case was considered closed after Boyle's conviction for the murder of Gail Smith. Acquitted. Teresa Jimmy Cross Sanders had escaped a murder rap once in her life. Married at the age of 18 to her first husband, Clifford Sanders, the couple had their first child in July of 1963. From the time of his birth, Howard Sanders was brought into the Sanders world of addiction and violence. Both Teresa and Sanders liked to drink and flirt at the bar, and there were rumors both of them had been unfaithful in their marriage. This would become the source of many of the fights between the couple that quickly escalated from harsh words to physical altercations. It was no secret that Clifford liked to slap Teresa around, and, from time to time, Teresa could get in a few swings back. In June of 1964, a particularly loud confrontation between the couple required police intervention. Clifford suspected Teresa had been out of the bar meeting other men. Clifford, took Teresa's purse and threw it against the window, busting the window in the process. He then began to beat her. Teresa agreed to press charges, but dropped them within days. Just two weeks later, Clifford Sanders would be dead. After Teresa agreed to drop the charges and take Clifford back, things did not get any better at home. Both continued to go to the bars and meet other people while Teresa's physically disabled father would be in charge of taking care of the couple's infant. Teresa found out she was pregnant with the second child, but that did little to stifle her from going out or having a good time. On the morning of July 6, 1964, Clifford decided he had had all that he could take, packed his bags, and was ready to abandon his family for good. Teresa had other plans. Grabbing an old Winchester deer rifle... Just as Clifford was about to walk out the front door for the last time, Teresa opened fire. (laughs) Teresa, who had been barefoot, pregnant, and still in her nightgown, drove down the block to a neighbor's home screaming. She admitted to shooting her husband in self-defense, believing the bullet had hit his arm. Police found Clifford dead on the scene. On August 4th, 1964, Teresa stood trial for the murder of her first husband, Clifford Sanders. Teresa pled not guilty. By then, the story of a pretty young mother standing trial for the murder of her husband had spread to national media. Testimony of witnesses suggested that Teresa had not shot Clifford because he was abusing her, but that she was upset because he was leaving her and the children. Prosecutors were also able to present photos from a house in Sacramento a couple had rented. Showing the jury the bullet holes were from a previous attempt on Clifford's life by Teresa, the defense, however, was able to create a very convincing narrative that Teresa had grabbed the gun. Another one of the couple's explosive arguments were Clifford had attempted to beat her again. Teresa was also able to show scars for some of their more vicious fights, including what appeared to be marks from cigarette burns on the back of her knees. Even with enough evidence to show that Teresa could be equally as violent as her husband, the courts took pity on the pregnant young mother. After just 12 days, it took the jury an hour and 45 minutes to acquit Teresa, on all charges. The next day, Teresa went to the prosecutor's office and coldly asked for the return of the gun she used in the killing. A second chance. Teresa narrowly escaped prison. Sheila was born in March of 1965, shortly after the charges had been dropped. It didn't take Teresa long to start dating again. Shortly after the trial came to a close, she had been introduced to a vet who had been rendered a quadriplegic. Lee Thornsberry. Lee and his mother helped Teresa through her pregnancy, and soon he and Teresa were engaged. Even then, people took note of Teresa's parenting. While Howard was showered with love and adoration, Sheila was often neglected. Some of those close to Teresa had later suggested that Sheila was the reason Teresa's first husband had been killed. Clifford accused Teresa of having an affair, and expressed doubts that Sheila was his on their last night together. Clifford also threatened to have testing done to determine if the baby growing inside Teresa's womb was really his biological child. It was these suspicions that had finally been the straw that had broken the camel's back in the couple's tumultuous relationship, one that would cost Clifford Sanders his life. Teresa blamed Sheila for Clifford's death. Lee was an opportunity for Teresa to have a chance to start over, and provided a stable home for her and her children. She had her own plans, however. Being a good mother or a dutiful wife wasn't a top priority. Teresa would go out to the bars while Lee stayed home with her children. If Lee refused, she would leave the children, old still babies at the time, in the car for long hours while she drank and flirted with other men. That's how she would meet her second husband, Bob Knorr. Teresa's philandering would go on for nearly a year before Lee Thornberry had enough and left the home they shared. Teresa moved out a year later, taking with her what few possessions Thornberry had left behind, including a washer-dryer set. In July of 1966, Teresa Jimmy Cross Sanders would become Teresa Jimmy Cross Sanders Knorr. Before their marriage, Bob's family warned him that Teresa was no good. Their warnings fell on deaf ears. Bob Knorr was in love, but things would begin to change and Teresa became more controlling. Once her and Bob tied the knot. Teresa was pregnant with their first daughter together as they stood at the altar. Three more would follow in the years to come. Teresa also became more cruel to the children, with Sheila bearing the brunt of it. The stress of having more children on the way only seemed to make her already short temper even shorter. For a short while, Sheila and Howard would be placed in the care of another couple, Bob's aunt and uncle, They witnessed some of the abuse firsthand. but learned to keep their mouths shut in front of Teresa for fear of the children, particularly Sheila. On one occasion, Teresa shaved Sheila's head. Bob's aunt noticed the cut marks on the top of the toddler's head and asked if Sheila had some kind of rash, causing her to scratch her head. Teresa told her, I sat her on the chair and shaved her head. Every time I pulled that razor, I wanted to go down into her brain with it, but I just didn't have the guts to. Sheila remained mute, but with another baby on the way, Teresa reluctantly allowed Bob's aunt and uncle to take over Sheila and Howard's care. A doctor found bed sores on the 18-year-old Sheila's leg and feet, similar to those elderly hospital patients get, suggesting she had been forced to stay in bed most of the time. In September of 1966, Teresa gave birth to her and Bob's first child, Susan, at the military hospital at the Mather Air Force Base. With the birth of Susan, Teresa's grip over Bob began to grow tighter. Combat wounds allowed Bob a cush job to finish out his years left in the military, mostly escorting the bodies of dead soldiers to their final resting places. Wherever Bob was ordered to go, he was forced to comply. But what Teresa wanted and what military wanted often butted heads. Teresa would demand to know exactly what funeral home Bob would be at, what hotels he would be staying in, where he would be eating. She would force him to report back every detail. He was subject to persistent and unpredictable check-ins by Teresa, often to the chagrin of Bob's commanding officers, as well as the funeral homes. Still, Bob remained by her side. Three months after Susan was born, Teresa was pregnant again. William Knorr was born in September 1967, Less than a year later, Teresa would be pregnant for the fifth time, and her behavior became even more erratic. She had become convinced that Bob had been having affairs behind her back while he was performing his military duties. Before Robert Noor was born on December 31st, 1968, Teresa had taken everything and left. She had been asked by Bob to pick him up. She never showed When Bob finally arrived home, he found Teresa, the kids, and everything in the house gone. Her decision to leave offered some bittersweet relief, but it would be short-lived. Bob convinced Teresa to come back with the kids. Two years later, Teresa Terry Knorr, her and Bob's youngest, was born in August 1970, before the couple finally called it quits for good. Teresa would spend the better part of a year stalking Bob and his new girlfriend, and often used the children as a means to control Bob until she finally found another man to settle down with. At 25, she would become Teresa Jimmy Cross Sanders Nora Paulium. By all accounts, Ron Polium had treated the six children as if they were his own, even helping Robert learn to walk and talk. Teresa's controlling tendencies also began to improve, allowing Bob and his new wife to visit the kids again. Teresa may have relinquished some of the control she attempted to have over her ex-husband, but only made her double down on the control she needed to have over the children. Howard, the oldest of Teresa's children, and her favorite of the bunch, was in charge of reporting back to Teresa what occurred during their weekend visits with Bob. For a time, the children seemed content with the situation, but things rapidly began to change after just a few visits. Bob and his new wife noticed the children becoming more reluctant to return home to Teresa and Ron. Seeing how happy the children were to be around their father and their new stepmother likely made Teresa jealous. She would begin refusing to allow the children to visit with Bob again, using them as a means to torment Bob and his new wife even further. The children were slowly coached to resent their father, with Teresa filling their heads full of horror stories that would make them afraid to ever return. Ron filed for divorce after less than a year of marriage. Teresa began leaving the children with Ron while she went out at night. If Ron wasn't home, then Howard would be in charge of the younger children. Ron nearly lost his job after calling off to look for Teresa when she failed to come home. He decided it would be best if they separated, but they continued to live together, primarily because of Ron's attachment to the children. In March of 1973, Ron agreed to help Teresa purchase her own home for herself and the kids in the suburbs of Sacramento.
2: Home.
0: A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, Is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town.
1: I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something.
2: She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack.
0: You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now.
2: Been me, them, and my whole life.
1: You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee?
2: Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Once on their own,
1: Teresa began flying off the handle more frequently with the children. And often, the kids had to play careful guessing games in order to determine what sort of mood their mother would be in that day. It would seem that even something as small as a prolonged hug from one of the children... It set off Teresa's violent temper. When we were kids, my mom beat the shit out of us a lot. Terry Knorr later told author Dennis McDougall. If we hugged our mom too much, it was like, who were we trying to convince? That we loved her or she loved us? On the other hand, if we didn't hug and kiss and tell her we loved her, then we didn't love her and we were evil children. We were the demon seeds that had been given to her by Bob Knorr. It was during this time that Teresa's drinking became progressively worse. Drinking with neighbors until the early morning hours and placing the children in the care of her oldest son, Howard. She also spent a lot of time at the bars, hoping to land a new boyfriend, but Teresa's youthful good looks were beginning to fade and she began to put on weight. As to be expected after giving birth to six children. The boyfriends Teresa had been able to land didn't tend to stick around long, and after getting a first taste of Teresa's explosive temper, Teresa blamed the children for her inability to settle down again and took it out on them with severe beatings and even more extreme punishments. Things would cool off for a period when Teresa finally landed a new husband, Chet Harris. Chet was a former six year old former newspaper reporter and took a shine to the children, particularly the bright and bookish Susan, who enjoyed talking philosophy with the aging journalist. Within weeks of becoming Mrs. Teresa Jimmy Cross Sanders Nora Paulium Harris, however, there was already trouble in paradise. Teresa learned that Chet was a hobbyist photographer with a knack for taking nude photos. In his private collection, Chet had nude photos of all his former wives a quirk that the jealous Teresa could never get past. Teresa felt slighted by the short-lived marriage, but she was determined to have the last laugh. After filing her straining order claiming Chet had attempted to choke her, Teresa was able not only to get her previous home back before it was sold, she was also able to get a lien against Chet's home, all of his appliances, and a statue of Venus de Milo. After the divorce, Teresa fell further into paranoid delusions. She became convinced that Chet Harris was a witch who had been practicing black magic against her. Susan, Chet's favorite of the six children, became the proxy in which she would vent her anger, claiming that Chet had put a spell on her and had initiated her into his coven. I grew up in an insane asylum, basically. But what's worse is, we didn't know it was an insane asylum. I never really admitted or even knew that I was being abused or that my family was being abused because I thought it was normal. Robert Norris said in an interview for the book Mother's Day. If the kids were late coming home from school, they were beaten. If one of the children mouthed off, they were beaten. They were forbidden to go outside or have friends around. By now, many of the kids were well into their teens, and Teresa found it increasingly difficult to administer corporal punishment. Howard or the other boys would have to restrain the others while Teresa whipped them, or beat them with whatever she can get her hands on, but was particularly fond of a 2 x 4 she nicknamed the Board of Education. Teresa became convinced that Susan was attempting to enter into the devil's dimension, and had secretly been using magic against her to make her gain weight. Unlike her other siblings, Susan had a defiance streak and would challenge her mother, driving her into wild fits of rage. Other times, Susan would give in and confess to Teresa's wild accusations. Whether she thought it would prevent further beatings or it was to drive her mother further into paranoid delusions, however, is anyone's guess. Witchcraft By 1980, Teresa stopped allowing any of the girls to attend school. Not only was it a way for her to have further control over their lives, but money became tight and the kids pulled together to help make ends meet. The girls helped Teresa provide in-home care to an elderly gentleman, while the boys got after-school jobs of their own. Even with everyone bringing in money, it wasn't enough. Teresa began taking the older girls, Sheila and Susan, to the bar ...to exchange money for sex. The schools never reported the children as truant, and no social workers ever came to the house. Hoping to escape out from under her mother's authoritarian boot, Susan decided to run away. Within days, she would be arrested and taken to juvenile detention. Susan told officials there that she had run away because of severe abuse she was facing at home... ...and had been forced into sex work by her mother... Teresa was able to convince authorities that Susan was a pathological liar, but Terry forced to back up Teresa's claims that she had never abused any of the children. It was on the way home that Teresa looked coldly at Susan and growled, If you think you were abused before, you just wait. I'll show you what abuse is. After administering a severe beating, all of the children were forced to line up and take turns beating and punching their sister. Fearing she would run away again, Susan was handcuffed to her bed, and the family took shifts watching over her to make sure she didn't attempt to run off or was casting spells. This would go on every night thereafter. The extreme lengths Teresa went to keep Susan under control may have worked for a while, but the eerie peace between the two would be broken. When Teresa noticed she had gained more weight Teresa accused Susan of using magic against her And ordered Robert to grab Susan So she could start beating her As she had many times before As both Susan and Teresa Continued to scream at one another Their shouting was pierced by gunfire (laughs) Teresa shot Susan in the chest Collapsing into the bathtub Miraculously Susan wasn't killed the bullet became lodged into a rib cage near her armpit. Within moments, Teresa's demeanor changed and she went to work, using her skills as a nurse, to begin treating Susan's wound. For the next month, Susan's brothers and sisters helped take care of Susan as she recuperated in the bathtub. Teresa saw to it that she received antibiotics to help fight infection and gave her ibuprofen and low doses of painkillers to ease the pain. When she was finally able to walk again, after a few weeks... Susan was allowed to leave the tub and return to her bed. By the fall of 1981, the family had been run out of the neighborhood after Howard, the oldest, had a squabble with some of the members of the Hell's Angels. In an agreement to avoid further backlash from the group, Teresa had agreed to sell the house and never come back to the neighborhood. The family picked up and moved to an apartment ten miles away in Sacramento. Teresa continued to pimp out Sheila and Susan, and as she saw fit, Terry was also sent along to keep an eye on her sisters. Teresa became convinced that Susan was attempting to use the situation to her advantage by conning one of her clients to help her run away from the home and began beating her more ruthlessly than ever. Susan, who had been handcuffed to the kitchen table, was forced to kneel while Teresa kicked and punched her. For days, Teresa would walk up and hit Susan in the back of the head. Many of the other children dared to even look at Susan. They would be beaten, too. In July of 1984, Susan and Teresa were in an argument. When Teresa threw a pair of scissors, stabbing Susan in the back, Susan demanded she be able to leave, being months away from her 18th birthday. Teresa agreed to loosen her iron grip from Susan, but on only one condition. Susan had agreed to allow Teresa to surgically remove the bullet from her back so she could not use it as evidence for the police. Susan agreed. Teresa fed Susan a cocktail of hard liquor and painkillers in preparation for the home surgery. Having the boys help hold her down, Teresa used an exacto knife to extract the lodged bullet from Susan's ribcage. By then, Susan was out cold. Even with antibiotics, Susan's condition went downhill rapidly as sepsis took hold. Four days, all her siblings could do was watch as Susan withered away next to the kitchen table. The sparkle in her eyes began to fade as she inched closer to death. She had lost all ability to control her bladder and her bowels, and the girls would help change her diapers. Finally, she stopped eating. Though, still alive, Susan was too weak to even speak. One day, Teresa gathered all of Susan's belongings and placed them into a bag. On the night of July 16, 1984, the family helped place Susan into the car And drove up near Lake Tahoe Pulling to the side of the road Robert and William Helped unload the bags of Susan's personal belongings And helped Susan out of the car After placing Susan and her things next to the creek Teresa ordered William to grab a gas can from the car Teresa began pouring the gas on Susan Returning back to the car Teresa ordered William to light a match And run away as fast as he could He had no choice but to follow his mother's orders. And within months, she would begin abusing Sheila as she had Susan. Sheila had found work cleaning for an elderly man in the neighborhood. Each time she did chores for the man, she brought her pay directly to Teresa. But Teresa became suspicious... She was convinced that Sheila had been providing sexual favors to the man. Convincing herself that Sheila, like Susan, had been possessed by demons, she refused to allow her back to the man's house, and she began routinely beating her. Teresa was convinced as a result of Sheila's suspected promiscuous activities, she had contracted a venereal disease, which Teresa believed had been passed to her when using the same bathroom and was the cause of all her mysterious weight gain. She began handcuffing Sheila to the kitchen table as she had Susan and ordered the other kids to keep watch over her. Sheila knew what was to come, but tried to fight back during one of her arguments with Teresa. After kicking Teresa in the shins, the other kids were ordered to help force Sheila into the linen closet, where she was left for weeks. After a few days, Sheila's pleas to be let out finally stopped. In a rare instance that Teresa left the house, Terry used the opportunity to give Sheila something to drink. When Terry opened the door, Sheila was emaciated, could hardly stand. She handed Sheila a beer, the only thing she had to give her. Before shutting the door, Teresa had returned, and Terry feared she would be the next to be stuffed into that two by two foot room. No one was really certain how long Sheila remained in the linen closet. But by two weeks the apartment began to take on a smell. Sheila was dead and William and Robert were ordered to help remove her from the closet. William and Robert were instructed by Teresa to place Sheila in a box so they could dispose of the body, stuffing the box that contained Sheila's body into the trunk of the car. Teresa and the boys set off to take Sheila to her watery grave. Pulling aside the road once again, this time near the Truckee River, William and Robert said their final goodbyes to their sister before getting into Teresa's still-running car, driving off into the night. While Teresa and the boys were gone, Terry would be forced to clean out the closet, where her sister had spent her last days. Being summer, the heat had caused Sheila's flesh to stick to the floor. And Teresa was afraid the smell would attract unwanted attention. Teresa Nora had already murdered two of her daughters. Now she set her sights on Terry. Seeing what happened to her sisters, Terry bargained with her mother to let her leave. Teresa saw an opportunity and agreed, but on the condition that Terry help her into the apartment in an effort to destroy any trace evidence that may have remained. Terry agreed to go along with Teresa's plan. However, it backfired. After lighting the apartment, Jumping out the window to avoid suspicion, the fire department was on the scene quick. A neighbor reported the smoke, and they were able to extinguish the fire with minimal damage to the apartment or the rest of the building. By then, Teresa was gone, and so was Terry. She managed to do what her older sister never could and escaped. The Ties That Bind By 1986, the family would begin to lose touch. Howard would be sent to prison for using his infant son as a punching bag. Terry would find herself couch surfing with friends and living on the streets, occasionally moving in with a boyfriend when she had one. William had moved in with his girlfriend and had begun working multiple jobs in addition to finishing high school. Only Robert remained in his mother's life. But after ditching him in a seedy Reno hotel room, even he lost touch with her. Terry had attempted to tell authorities about the murder of her sisters, but they refused to believe her story. One night, in an act of desperation, Terry called America's most wanted and confessed everything. The sympathetic operator couldn't offer much except a shoulder to cry on, but encouraged Terry to contact the counties where the bodies were found. After years of being told her story was a work of fiction, the details of Terry's story were found to match one of the Jane Does discovered in Placer County. In November of 1993, the Placer County DA began preparing a warrant for the arrest of Robert, William, and Teresa Knorr. Robert was difficult to locate. He had been serving time for second-degree murder in Nevada. Authorities were able to locate William swiftly as well. Teresa, however was more difficult to locate, but ten days after preparing the warrant, Teresa was located working as a live-in caretaker for an elderly woman in Salt Lake City. Teresa attempted to duck out the back after being taken off guard by two detectives standing at the door. Another officer stood outside waiting with a pair of handcuffs, and she was taken without further incident. Teresa Jimmy Cross was charged with two counts of murder, two counts of conspiracy to commit murder as well as two special circumstances, multiple murder and murder by torture. She and her two sons would stand trial on June 29, 1994. Robert was able to strike a plea bargain and have his charges reduced in exchange for his testimony. He instead received an accessory after-the-fact charge and was ordered to serve out three years concurrently with his unrelated second-degree murder sentence. Learning the robber planned to testify against her, Teresa agreed to plead guilty in order to avoid the death penalty. She is currently serving two life sentences. William would receive leniency in his sentencing. He was sentenced to probation and court ordered to undergo therapy for his role in Sheila's murder. After Teresa's arrest, investigators reopened the unsolved case of her sister's murder in 1983. Rosemary Norris had been found strangled to death at the end of a dead-end street in Placer County. Though investigators considered Rosemary's husband the prime suspect, no evidence was able to prove he had been behind the fatal attack, and he fell off the map once the life insurance check cleared. Teresa would also be cleared as a suspect. Terry would join her sisters at the age of 41, after suffering a heart attack in 2011. In one of her final Facebook posts, she wrote, I would like to start by saying hello. This is, in a way, purging my demons. I'm hoping that by writing this down, I can not only help myself, but can help others. I'm the only surviving daughter of Teresa Jimmy Cross and Robert Wallace Nor, and I am the youngest of six children. My life has been much less than ideal. But I have always tried to have a good heart. The abuse that my sisters and I were subjected to by my mother and brothers, no living soul should have to endure. But the truth is, people in this world are subjected to the abuse at the hands of the ones that are supposed to love them every day. The trouble with these abusers is that they make you feel like you are the one that is in the wrong when it is they that have committed a wrong act we don't speak out we can't stop the violence against our fellow brothers sisters young and old alike rest in peace terry